Welcome to the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast, a podcast exploring stories of murder, mystery and suspense. I'm your host Bridget and I'm joined again by my co-host James. Hello. So today we've got another really fun Agatha Christie story to talk about. Yeah, yeah we do. Yeah, so should we just get into that? Let's get into it. Let's go. Following a performance by up-and-coming impressionist Carlotta Adams, Hercule Poirot and his good friend Captain Hastings are having dinner at the Savoy when they are approached by the beautiful, beguiling actress Jane Wilkinson, Lady Edgware by marriage. Jane wants Poirot's help in getting rid of her estranged husband, the mean and creepy Lord Edgware. Poirot is intrigued, and he agrees to meet Lord Edgware at his home, Regent Gate, to help negotiate a divorce, but is surprised to find that Lord Edgware has already written to Jane agreeing to a divorce, a letter which Jane claims never to have received. Jane is thrilled with the outcome of this meeting and everything seems settled. But within 24 hours, Lord Edgware dies. At first, things seem simple. Jane Wilkinson was spotted entering Regent Gate shortly before the murder occurred, and so she quickly falls under suspicion. It soon transpires, however, that Jane was at a dinner party that evening, and that the twelve other guests at the party can vouch for her presence. Someone else must have murdered Lord Edgware, after all. Could the real murderer be the sweet yet highly intelligent comedienne, Carlotta Adams, who perhaps entered the house disguised as Jane Wilkinson? Could it be Lord Edgware's mousy, frightened daughter, Geraldine, who hates and resents her father? Or does the blame lie with Lord Edgware's wayward heir and nephew, Ronald Marsh? Or could it be Brian Martin, the unpredictable film star who seems to have been drawn into Jane Wilkinson's orbit? It's up to Poirot, Hastings and Inspector Jack to solve the mystery before the killer strikes again. Lovely. So we're obviously talking about Lord Edgware dies here. Lord Edgware dies. By the dame. Yep, by Dame Agatha Christie. Another exciting romp through the murderous... Aristocracy. The murderous, yeah, the murderous high society of London. Yeah. Do you want to give us some quick facts, Bridget? Yeah, Lord Edgware Dies was published in 1933. It is the seventh novel to feature Hercule Poirot, although I think there was also a collection of short stories and a play as well before that. Um, Before it was published, it was serialised in six issues of The American Magazine, presumably for an American audience. You'd imagine so, wouldn't you? You'd think so, yes. Interesting stuff. A quick warning before we get started. Lord Edgware Dies contains some racist and offensive language and themes, which you might find offensive or upsetting. We won't be going into it here, but we'd like to warn you in case you're interested in going back and reading or rereading the book. Thank you. Um... Before we we crack on any further with this, obviously uh, this is a mystery and uh, we're going to be talking about some spoilers. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want it spoiled for you... We will be immediately um, spoiling the ending. Yeah, don't listen any further than this. 
So um, before we start, I think we should just talk about the ending of the novel, just yeah, so that tie we can things up. yeah introduce it and make sure we know what we're talking about. So um, spoiler alert: the ending. Jane did it all along. Um, she stabbed Lord Edward and killed him. It was Jane, after all, who entered the house. Uh, Carlotta Adams was impersonating her at the dinner party. So the alibi was faked. The alibi was faked, and there was a switch, but it wasn't the switch that we all thought. We all thought that it was. Carlotta Adams entering the house, but actually it was the other way round, which is pretty clever. Mm -hmm. Jane got Carlotta Adams to go along with this by telling her it was all a big hoax and she was going to take part in this prank. Yeah. Um, So obviously afterwards, Jane Wilkinson had to poison Carlotta Adams with the Veronal and she made it look like an accidental overdose in order to cover it up. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the story. Yeah, so this story um, is pretty much set entirely in London, isn't it, Bridget? Yeah, I think one of my favourite things about it is that it's set in this really kind of fun and vivid interwar London high society, which I found really appealing. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more kind of open world than a lot of Agatha Christie's because often it's in a sort of secluded base, like a country manor or a village or or even a holiday resort where they can't leave certain confines, whereas in this they sort of roam around the whole of London, don't they? Yeah, it's kind of like just set in London. So it's quite different. It's not in that closed community Mm -hmm. environment, which obviously makes Mm -hmm. it a bit broader. Um, I like it. It's all kind of like lunching at the Savoy and dinner parties and kind of going to the theatre. It's very, very um, glamorous. And Poirot is very much in his comfort zone for this one, isn't he? He's in his natural habitat. Yeah. And I find that quite appealing as well, because I like Poirot, and I don't like him to be uncomfortable. And quite often, um, Agatha Christie puts him puts Poirot in some settings where he clearly is not comfortable and He's not He's not very happy. happy a lot of the time. Yeah, he? he doesn't like staying in places where he can't be comfortable. And this is like kind of London, it's luxury. It's... Yeah, he's very chill throughout the whole he's of this chill. one, pretty much. He's happy. Apart from when he's waving his arms, but <laughs> maybe more on that <laughs> We later. can talk about <laughs> his arm waving later. Um, yeah, but he's, he's having a nice time. And um, the only kind of place which in it, I think, is really kind of not, pleasant is Regent Gate, the house where Lord Edgware lives. Yeah, it's not it's not described with any sort of pleasantness or yeah. niceties. In fact, it? it's really gothic. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a really interesting juxtaposition with the rest of London, which is all vivid and bright and exciting and full of all these film stars and actors and stuff. And inside Regent Gate is described as being kind of without any light. It's very dark. It's full of these creepy people. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Shadow, like, shadow-dwelling people. Like, yeah, um, like, well, Lord Edgware's a very creepy guy. He's very is. creepy indeed. Um, and he's very angry, and he kind of skulks around his library, like, just being generally creepy. Um, his butler is like a weird Greek god type, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, his secretary, Miss Carroll's kind of unpleasant and terse. She, get this, she's a bit of a kind of a curtain twitcher. Yeah. and She's sort of... Keeping an eye on everyone else in the house when at all times. When Poirot and Hastings go to the house, they see this girl on the way out who's kind of white, pale, and she's got long black hair, and mm-hmm. she's, like, really tall and she just and sort thin. of disappears into her surroundings. Yeah, yeah. and um, she reminds me a bit of, like, I don't know, Wednesday Adams or, or whatever. Like mm-hmm. She just... It's, it's a very gothic kind of... It strange. is, yeah. Which you don't often get in these sorts of books. No, you don't. 
Uh, one thing I sort of noticed about this particular book is that the cast of characters are, it's almost like Cluedo, each character has a matching colour. Yeah. Um, so, starting with Jane Wilkinson, you're always told about her golden hair. So Jane Wilkinson is gold. Mm. Carlos Radams, she's always wearing black. Uh, Geraldine Marsh, you mentioned just now, Lord Edward's daughter, she is white. She's, she's like pale. a sort of ghost character. Yeah. Um, and then who else have Jenny you got? Driver. You've got Jenny Driver, who uh, is a bit of a peripheral character, but she's like bright red. Yeah, she's um, red and vivacious. Yeah. yeah, there might be a couple of others that are slipping my mind at the moment, but it's really it, it really leapt out at me the the fact that these characters have some really significant identifiers, which um, it almost makes it a little bit cartoonish. I thought. Mm. Um, You're right. It's, it's very like Cluedo or something. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's very Cluedo-y. I, I'm. I mean, I don't know a huge amount about the game Cluedo. I don't, I don't know if it was at all. Ins- I mean, obviously it's <laughs> inspired by these definitely. books and the Golden yeah. Age of Crime, isn't it? But it, it might have drawn some more aesthetic ideas from them as well as just the yeah. pure setting of the game. We should definitely explore that. Yeah? Yeah, that's a project. Maybe that's a project for us for a special episode special, later on. yeah. But never mind all the other characters, I would like to talk about someone we already know quite well, who yeah. I think is quite important oh, in yeah. this novel, yeah. and that's Captain Hastings. Good old Captain Hastings. Arthur Hastings. Yeah, his name is Arthur. I didn't know till I read the Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice name, Arthur. Lovely. Mm. Yeah, so Hastings is the narrator of this novel, as he is of quite a few of them. But um, Quite a few of the early ones, yeah. Yeah. He sort of um, goes away after a while. Yeah, but he brings this sort of breezy tone to proceedings, doesn't he? Yeah. He's too. He's also in his happy place, being in London. He's, he's, he's in his happy place, yes, but he's got a bit of a... Maybe tempestuous is a bit of a big word, but a slightly interesting relationship with Poirot, hasn't he? His relationship with Poirot is like central to this novel, and I think it's really yeah. important that we just talk mm-hmm. about this first, um, because it seems to me like it's one of the most important things about the novel. Yeah, it's it. You you can certainly think about the relationship between Hastings and Poirot and draw different conclusions depending on sort of whichever mm. way you look at mm. it. Um, so sometimes it feels like it's a really unequal relationship because Hastings is often presented as being quite dim really really extremely stupid yeah he certainly has his moments but (laughs) and then obviously on the other hand Poirot is like this supreme intellect um but then on other occasions they do complement each other quite well right yeah so um uh, the possibly slightly um rude way that Poirot often puts this is that Hastings is like a really normal average person uh, that allows him to sort of formulate his ideas Mm. Um, so there is sort of an implied codependency there Um, but uh, the question is often kind of like what does Hastings get out of this? Yeah, I think if you've watched the TV show you'd be forgiven for thinking that Poirot and Hastings have quite a sweet little um, relationship where they're like best buddies and they're nice to each other. Mm-hmm. As in the novel, um, Poirot's not very nice to Hastings at yeah, all. There's quite a lot of sniping. Doesn't we he? talked about this a little bit when we did the murder of Roger Ackroyd. He's quite rude to Hastings. Yeah, to his face. Yeah, um, and I guess it does make it feel a bit like a one-sided relationship. Um, but then there is the whole thing of like. Is it a functional relationship? Is 
Poirot just bringing him along so that he can help him solve the crimes or do they actually get something out of it and I'm inclined to think that like we shouldn't take Poirot's word for it like they clearly both get something out of this yeah I think that's certainly true well Hastings has like a taste for adventure doesn't he yeah I think so and like I, I said to you yesterday Hastings is a great person to have along for these adventures because he has absolutely no imagination so he clearly is not scared of anything at all yeah that's true He'll, he'll go along with uh, things that maybe other people would get a bit worried about. Yeah, because he's never um, afraid of anything. Yeah, I suppose... Because he doesn't know what's going on half the time. Do they sometimes get each other into different sorts of um, situations? Like, they're, they're both involved in high society, but in kind of quite different ways. And, yeah. And that gives... So like Each Hastings gives the other is, one kind of different levels of access, Hastings right? is kind of a natural in that society, because he's clearly like... Yeah, he's an, he's an insider. Whereas Poirot is like a, an honorary outsider, isn't he? He's but, like a he's a Belgian mm-hmm. and he's a celebrity who's sort of worked his way up That's and true, worked but, his way into that society. But he's got the links to the celebrity society. Yeah. I.e. your Jane Wilkinson. Yeah, we and so we on. kind of think, don't we, that that's kind of something Hastings is interested in. Yeah, being he, involved in, with that he enjoys hanging out with the show um, business. Yeah, and with all those that sorts sort of, of thing. people. Um, but I think, like, would you say it's a believable relationship? I think it is kind of believable that Hastings would enjoy going around with a detective because um, he's he's got a bit of a taste for the exciting and uh, and adventure. So that's what he gets out of it. Um, I think there's something to be said for Poirot having Hastings as a useful foil as well. Mm. Um Although, this is obviously a novel where Inspector Jap is involved too. So, how many, <laughs> how many straight men do you really need, Poirot? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's kind of believable. It's not. Sometimes you think it's quite implausible, but I, I don't think it's as, as bad as all that. Yeah, I mean, like on rereading it, I didn't think it was as bad as I remembered. And I think one of the good things about this particular novel is that. Um, because obviously Hastings is narrating, you get a lot of his back chat that he doesn't yeah, actually do. say to Poirot, but he thinks this. So he doesn't just take all of this, um, what would you call it? Lying like, down. He doesn't take it all lying down. So when Poirot, for example, is famously going on about his little grey cells, mm-hmm. um, Hastings is just like finds this really annoying. Like, And I'm sure <laughs> yeah. that like most people would do. Oh, yeah. And he says, I'm afraid that I've got into the habit of averting my attention whenever Poirot mentions his little grey cells. And he also says Poirot can be intensely irritating at times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he really, like, finds him very annoying. But I think, obviously, he also finds him really endearing. But he has this idea that he actually says at one point that he really thinks that the reason Poirot might have him hanging around is because he actually just wants someone he can boast to mm-hmm. who makes him look clever. So I think there's that as well. Yeah. One of our favourite bits of the novel, wasn't it, was when um, Poirot gives Hastings a little bit of a lecture about how to talk to... How to talk to how the... How to talk to the young folks. How to talk to the kids. Which is a bit ironic, really, given that Poirot is quite a lot older than Hastings. Poirot's... He's always, always calling Hastings a young man as well. I think... We looked and I think Hastings is, like, 40. But anyway, um, Hastings... I, I don't know if he's on Poirot's cantankerous side at this point, but he is, isn't he? Because they're having a bit of an argument about something or other. Oh, it's so funny. And he, it's Hastings, the bit where... 
Hastings says something is not playing the game. It's the bit where um, he reads the letter from the Duke of Merton to Jane Wilkinson, his lover, and he reads this letter while he, like, he's, he reads it upside down yeah. in the Duke's hands. Poirot, this is. Yeah, Poirot reads this le- this love letter, and he, like, obviously after the meeting, when he's done this, he tells Hastings, I've read this letter, and Hastings, like, flips out because you don't does, yeah. you do not do that it's not you gentlemanly. just you just don't read other people's love letters and he says to Poirot this is just not playing the game but <laughs> Poirot tells him that he shouldn't say playing the game because it's not what the young people are saying now. Yeah, I mean, he really doesn't care about Hastings' actual point. Yeah, he just, <laughs> he just says, wants to give him advice on the modern says, slang. It is not said anymore. Young, beautiful girls will laugh at you if you say playing the game and not cricket. Yeah, which is particularly cutting to Hastings, given that he's always falling in love with the young, beautiful girls. Yeah. So um, that was kind of weird. I, I really felt for Hastings. And nobody want, nobody likes being lectured about how they're using the wrong slang. Yeah, well, particularly when you're pretty wound up already. Yeah. But yeah, we sort of talked about Hastings having his moments of possibly not being the brightest bulb. And there's a couple of points here um, where he really sinks to some, some new lows. <laughs> um, so uh, when they're investigating the murder... Um, of Carlotta Adams. Of, of, no, of Lord Edgware. Oh, yeah, of Lord Edgware. Well, it's, so when they're investigating the murder of Lord Edgware, they're going around Regent's Gate where obviously Lord Edgware has been killed. And um, Poirot realises that uh, none of the witnesses, in inverted commas, who have seen uh, Jane Wilkinson come in actually saw her face, right? Um, <laughs> so suddenly he thinks, oh, but I saw that impressionist doing the impression of Jane Wilkinson the other night. And realises that Carlotta Adams could be an accessory to this crime, and if so, is in a lot of danger. Mm-hmm. And he whips him and Hastings off to uh, to go and check in on her. In a taxi. Indeed. And they and go to the theatre, and they go looking for her address, and they ask people where to go, and they go to her apartment or whatever. Yeah, and this whole time, Hastings does not understand anything at all. In all of his time in <laughs> investigating cases with Poirot, he, he just he somehow doesn't pick up on the fact that Poirot's state of agitation um, is due to the fact that Carlos Adams might be in some danger. It's yeah. really quite astounding. He's just like, I don't have a clue what's going on and I'm wondering why Poirot is in such a state and Poirot is just like not telling him. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit harsh that Poirot never tells him because we were talking about this the other day and we realised that they're sort of traipsing around London for like yeah, a couple must, of hours. It must be hours they actually spend on this. Yeah, but um, it's amazing that Hastings didn't work it out. But there you go. All the while, he's just saying, "I just, I just didn't understand why we were doing this." <laughs> Do you think it was more or less stupid than on the TV the time when he thought that that box of drugs in the cave was a box of sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know what sandwich boxes would have looked like at the time, so you never know. Yeah, I mean, it looked like a lunchbox, didn't it? Yes. So. I think it's more stupid than that. And Hastings was at her show as well, where he saw her do the impression oh, of, yeah. of Jane Wilkinson. So While he really, Jane was sitting next to him. He really should time. be putting two and two together. Yeah, yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about was Inspector Jap. Oh, yeah. And specifically, well, Inspector Jap sort of 
is is a great character as well. You don't mm-hmm. see him as much as Hastings, but like he is a lot of fun and he brings a lot of like banter because he's quite like he's like the opposite of he's Hastings. Quite earthy. He's quite sardonic. Yeah. He's clever. Like Hastings is like stupid and like jo- jovial, and mm-hmm. and Jap's like sardonic but clever. So he brings kind of like this fun banter that you know you get. With when there's the three of them, yeah. Um, but what I had never realised before I read this book, um, and what you really don't get from the sorry to keep bringing up the TV adaptations, but they are absolutely wonderful. But mm-hmm. like, what you really don't get from the TV adaptations is that Hastings does not like Inspector Jap. No, no. So he obviously really doesn't on like the TV. Him. It's like it's the gang, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not like this here. They they kind of lock horns a bit, don't they? Yeah, he's like at the beginning, at least of this novel. He really doesn't like Inspector Jack. Mm-hmm. They um, come round a bit to each other. I think they? they come round a little bit, but at the beginning he sort of descri- he describes him as saying something and giving a vulgar wink, yeah. which I thought was quite funny. I think he has a... Um, that's clearly like some kind of class thing going on, isn't there? Oh, for sure, yeah. Because obviously Hastings is Yeah, Hastings is, is, is sort of some sort of low-level aristocracy, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas Jap is just a middle-class well, geezer. Yeah. Working class, I don't know, would you call a police officer? I think police is probably middle class. Yeah, but... well, he's like a high up police officer, isn't he? Yeah. But he's more like, yeah, I think that maybe Hastings looks down on him a little bit. Yeah. But also, I think that Hastings is secretly jealous of him. I think that's highly possible. I think that's the implication because obviously Poirot has a lot more respect for, Hast- uh, for Jap than he does for Hastings when you look oh, at how yeah, they interact sure. because. Yeah. I mean, in in fairness, Jap's ideas are not all really, really stupid. So yeah, and Jap does actually do sort of active things to help quite a lot more than yeah. Hastings, as opposed to just like being a board for Poirot yeah. to bounce his ideas yeah. off. Yeah, so that was quite interesting to me. And as you say, yeah, Hastings seems to warm to him. I also want to talk about Poirot and his antics. Yeah, he's got some good ones in this book. So this is an early novel, and I think Poirot's still in a kind of slight. I know. There's a section of the book where he does nothing but sit in his chair, mm-hmm. in his flat. And Hastings gets quite edgy about this he because does. he's he, like... He gets itchy feet. He gets edgy because he's like, we should be out solving things. And he inspe- thinks Jap's going to get all the glory. Inspector Jap's out solving it and we're just sat in the flat. Like, yeah. what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, throughout most of the novel, I think Poirot's still in his early, more hands-on phase, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not quite as psychological as he becomes in the later novels no that's certainly true he's quite hands-on like he actually goes and looks at things and does things i think it's not necessarily detection though he's not like brushing for prints or anything no he's not pulling off tricks yeah at one point and this is really great i loved this Mm -hmm. he does get up to some antics in this novel and at one point he is trying to prove that um, the secretary at Regent Gate couldn't possibly have seen whether it was Jane Wilkinson's face or not yes. from the upstairs Which when is where she, she looked was. down. And in order to do this, he leaves Hastings and Jap upstairs and Poirot... It's is... just Hastings upstairs. Oh, is it? Yeah. And Poirot is downstairs mm-hmm. and um, Hastings is watching. Yes. And what Poirot does is he puts a rose in his mouth. <laughs> He puts a rose in his mouth. Like Carmen. He says, a la Carmen. Um, and kind of prances around with it a bit. And then yeah. he goes up and asks Hastings if he noticed the rose. And of course, like, he didn't. But 
Yeah, I, this is another example of him being mean to Hastings, by the yeah, way. Because him Hastings... and Jap just have a right laugh about they have how a Hastings proper didn't laugh see at it. it. And yeah. Hastings is just getting a bit upset by himself. It is quite normal not to notice those things anyway. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember when I was in school, there was a, a te- like an experiment where you get shown a video that's like a football game and a gorilla walks across the pitch or something. Oh, right. And it's normal for the brain to filter out the gorilla. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you just because you're looking at the ball and the players, you don't notice anything else happening in the mm-hmm. other side of the pitch. It's yeah. just really obvious if you yeah. know about it. So I think it's a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what your brain's not going to filter out? What? Someone throwing a vase of tulips at you. <laughs> which is another of Poirot's tricks in this one. This is amazing. He's like, right, so imagine you're in this situation. You really, really want to get someone's glasses off their face. <laughs> like, how do you do that? It's hard. You, you not only, like, do you... Without them realising. Without them knowing. And he just devises this plan that he's going to knock this vase of tulips off this shelf onto this person. It's um, Ellis, Jane Wilkinson's maid. Mm-hmm. Um, and he performs this in order to get her so like her face so wet that she takes off her glasses, doesn't he? Yeah, it's quite worrying. And it's that like throw like a vase, a vase at her face. Ch- yeah, <laughs> I don't know how this went off, but it must have been quite impressive. It must have been quite difficult and to dangerous. film. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Well, I mean, so when you're reading something, you can be like, oh. And then Poirot accidentally knocked the tulips off and it splashed yeah. Alice's face. And you can kind of just sort of gloss over it in your imagination. Yeah. But if you've got to literally film that happening, <laughs> right, you've yeah. got to create that physical scenario, right? Yeah. I think that you'd have to get very wet to get the glass, to get the person to actually would. take the glasses There's been off. There's a lot so... of water in that vase. Yeah, but the vase didn't just smack her in the head. So it was, it was quite an operation. It certainly your... was. It's but impressive. That... Then he also has the sleight of hand to uh, switch over the pants as well, Yeah, he, he switches the glasses. Yeah. So this isn't even Poirot's first trick involving switching glasses. Yeah, he is this with Miss Carol, and, I mean, this is even more audacious, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... It's just, amazing. It's basically just pulling them off her face, right? Yeah, I mean, he just basically whacks them off. He gets his cuff caught in the, the glasses chain. Yeah. And just whacks them off onto the floor... And then when they're on the floor, he does a sneaky switch and he switches mm-hmm. them for the other ones. Yeah, so there's not even any misdirection in that one. It's yeah, and she doesn't even notice as she puts them on that are not her glasses. Yeah, well, maybe once the glasses are off, she's just... If they were all quite similar or something? Maybe everyone yeah, wore I mean, the same I, kind, I, I don't know. Obviously no one wears pince-nez nowadays. Maybe they do all, all just look very similar. I think it's a bit sad that we've stopped wearing all these kinds of glasses that mm-hmm. they used to wear at the time, like pince-nez. Well, they're not very practical, are they? I don't know. Do they just sit on your nose? Yeah, I think they're little things. Do you have things. to squeeze them? Like... Yeah. No, no, no. no they they, they just... pinch onto your nose, I think. But I think they're quite, they have to be quite small, I think, so... It would right. only really work for reading and Reading things. glasses. Well, so, like, nobody wears a monocle anymore, do they? Yeah, well, monocles are obviously stupid. <laughs> but, you know, the hipsters bring everything back, so I'd love to see a hipster wearing a monocle. That would be quite I've something. I've not seen that yet. No, neither have I. Well, we'll, uh, we'll hold our breath on that one. Yeah, that's Actually, more probably of a, best not to. It's more of a Peter Whimsy thing, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think he's a bit more of a hands one boy, right? He certainly is, yeah. And he gets very excited sometimes and he does... <laughs> we talked about this when we talked about Roger Ackroyd, like how he, he gets very excited. Yeah, I mean, when he gets excited, green. he really gets excited. 
His eyes, his eyes glow green. And, they glowed um, green quite a lot in Lord Edward as well. They did, yeah. yeah. Maybe not quite so uh, garishly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Or, and, when uh, he had some ideas, they glowed green. Yeah, he starts waving his arms around like a maniac whenever he has a big idea as well. Poirot made a gesture more extravagant than any gesture I had seen him make. Both arms whirled in the air. Yeah, and that's normally immediately followed by him charging out of the room and not yeah. being seen for two days and or never something. T- he never tells Hastings where he's going. No, Poor so Hastings. Hastings just sort of sits in his flat until he comes back. <laughs> oh, poor Hastings. So we've talked a bit about Poirot and Hastings, mm-hmm. and now I think that the we goodies. should... Yeah, and now I think we should talk about the baddie. Oh, yeah. Jane Wilkinson, Jane Wilkinson. Lady Edgware. Lady Edgware mm. is a great baddie. That's my opinion too. Like mm-hmm. I, I love her. I think she's a great murderer. Oh yeah, one of the best sure. ones in Poirot, in my yeah. opinion. Really charismatic, really audacious. Yeah, um, really fun, mm-hmm. glamorous. I would argue quite believable. Actually, I first I read it, I thought she's not believable at all. That's ridiculous. But then, like the second time round, I was a bit like, actually, like. She kind of is acting the way that someone like that would act. Yeah, I mean, the there are... she says. Like, she's super manipulative. Yeah, there are manipulative people out there who do exist in, like, such a cold-blooded way, right? I mean... Yeah, you, you... but she's not, though, because she she has her own self-interest, and that's all she can see. Yes, but when she gets onto something, she is cold-blooded and simple-minded. Yeah, and, and, and she does plows straight through it. And she does not care about anyone else except oh, herself. Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, her murder, her her murder plan, is immediately based on killing two people, not one. See, I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna mention that because that's what makes one of the things that makes the crime so audacious is the fact that it was just like an additional death. Yeah. That you have to do as well mm-hmm. be- in order to pull it off. I mean, I suppose. Carlos Adams probably is quite vulnerable because she's uh, she's not got all the connections that Jane Wilkinson has, and yet she's uh, an American in in the UK, so she's quite isolated. And you could, yeah, I mean, she does manage to kill her, and no one notices until uh, a yeah, day later, yeah, because until Poirot like, goes looking yeah, for her. Yeah, um, it's just it's one of my favorite crimes. Like, I mean, it's quite a boring murder in a way because it's just like a stabbing. Like, there's nothing like super creative about True. the method, but. It's really, really complicated. As a plan, it's really complicated. It revolves around lots of meetings, lots of getting in taxis and driving to places, switching clothes, going to a hotel, meeting there. It's super complicated and it's just very risky. And there's all these, like, I, I think that the, um, the 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 box so she plants like this box on Carlotta Adams that she's had made specially that just randomly says like the eighth of November D mm-hmm. in it and it's just nonsense like it doesn't mean anything it's just deliberately but it's all misdirection yeah it's all just supposed to confuse I think that's really clever mm-hmm. well what's most clever about this is the fact that she comes up with it basically in one evening right? she plans it so quickly and you don't realise until the end because she says it in like at the very end she explains that she's planned this whole thing mm-hmm. in like one evening yeah and so she, she she knew that she was going to stab him right yeah. so that was premeditated but then she she, added she decides afterwards. to use Carlos Radham's the day she sees Carlos Radham's show where she does yeah, the impression she decides it that evening and then yeah that's the same evening that she meets Poirot and she decides, oh, I can send Poirot to... Get the um, divorce. Get and remove and, my motive. And that will remove the motive. Yeah. I think the divorce thing is super clever. That is a really it's good red herring. It's such a good red herring. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I was going to talk about this because Jane Wilkinson is one of my favourite kinds of Poirot villains. She is one of the Poirot villains who deliberately involves Poirot in her own murder. <laughs> now this is really audacious because everyone who knows about Hercule Poirot knows he's never he's never been foiled before. Like he's never failed. Well, to be fair, Jane Wilkinson is exactly the sort of person that wouldn't know that. Yeah, true. She probably doesn't know. <laughs> but it is but an astoundingly... It's, it's like such an audacious thing. Like, yeah. imagine the self-confidence that oh, she yeah. must have to do this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she deliberately involves Poirot. And the first time I read this, I was like, oh my God, she's deliberately involved Poirot. Like, that's so brave and stupid. Mm-hmm. But then actually, the reason she does it is to implant this idea that she has no motive because she's yeah. got the divorce. It's and quite, that's actually quite a clever thing to do. It's quite necessary to her plan. I think yeah. her big mistake in this... Um, uh, plot is the letter. I think, I mean, for the reader, it seems like a big mistake because it's so obvious. I just think it's not necessary as well. It's yeah, a big, it's it's a big risk to, to so, provide that extra information because there is information in there yeah. um, that is true. Um, and she's already created enough misdirection yeah. to make herself safe at that point. So Carlotta Adams wrote a letter to her sister explaining what was going on. Explaining the hoax. Explaining what she thought was, going, she on. Thought was going on. And it, it revealed everything, basically. And Jane Wilkinson found it, read it, and instead of just disposing of it, she tore off the bit that referred to her by name and also the S at the beginning of he so that it looked like it was a man. Sorry, at the beginning of she, so that instead of it saying she, it said he, and therefore it made everyone think that the the perpetrator was a man. Mm -hmm. Um, This is obviously super clever, um, but like you say, quite risky because... Also, the letter had lots of, like, true things in it, Mm -hmm. and it also made it a lot easier for Poirot to solve the mystery overall. The other thing to say about it is, like, if you have the copy of the book with the picture of the letter in, um, it's highly likely, I think, that if you look at it, you will know immediately what has been ripped off. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's reproduced as an image in in the book, and as soon as you see something (laughs) like that, you know that there's something visual that you have to get out of it, right? Otherwise, it would just be reproduced. Did you go, yeah, yeah, you yeah can, there's obviously S missing from that here. You can see it because there's a little bit of the S left Yeah, in. I mean, it's um, a, it's a kind of unfortunate they include that in illustration because it, yeah. it's astoundingly obvious. They could maybe have done a better job of doing yeah. the illustration. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> she also seems to really enjoy the crime, which is kind of fun for a Poirot villain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she revels in it even yeah. once she's been found and out. And she right? sends this letter to Poirot at the end after she's been found out. And it's just... Yeah, she kind of just uses it as an opportunity to just make sure that everything is told as she wanted and remind you how clever she was. And she's like, exactly how everyone talks about her, she's like childlike, she's cold and calculating, you know, she's kind of stupid, but she's also really clever in a different way. So Mm -hmm. she keeps going on about like, well, don't you think it was clever what I did here? And I did this and that was very clever and I would have got away with it if you hadn't been so clever, Poirot. It's a fun letter. I enjoyed it. It is good, yeah. But uh, obviously her stupidness is kind of her undoing. Yeah, we should talk about the dinner party because that's kind of like her downfall, really. I mean, we both basically think that this is Carlotta Adams' fault, right? Okay, so at the dinner party, um, initially... 
she was fine. We everyone thought that Jane Wilkinson was at this dinner party. Yes, because none of the people there actually knew her that well. So when yeah. Carlos Radden shows up, they just think it's her. They think it's her because she's dressed like her and she's yeah. acting like her and, it's and she's pretending candlelit as well. It's so. it's dark yeah. and they don't really know her that well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite plausible. I was thinking about the likelihood of this happening because I actually went on Goodreads and read some of the reviews, and some people were casting a bit of doubt on whether or not you could get away with this mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah. And I thought about it, and I thought, actually, although initially I was, like, sceptical, I actually think you could do, because they they don't know her that well, and they're just sitting with her at a dinner party one evening. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about you, but, like, I've sat with people at pies and, like... Yeah, I think it's, it's maybe a little bit far-fetched, but it's not certainly not the most outrageous thing yeah, in this book. I don't even. think so. I think it's plausible. I know she's a star, but like this is before like loads and loads of TV and stuff. So yeah, like yeah. people plausibly could only have seen like photographs of her like and not loads and loads. Like just a few. Mm-hmm. However, Carlos Radams messes up her impression of her and um starts talking about the Greek classics. Which she Jane Wilkinson famously has no knowledge of. She starts Carlos Radams like is this great impressionist um, who's been put up to this job, which she's been paid, like, what, £10,000 for? Yeah. And this is, like, her big break. There's this movie star who's, like, a stage star who's, like, employing her to do this great prank. And for she, a lot of money. For loads of money. And this woman's not thick. Carlotta Adams is not stupid. Mm-hmm. And she's done her impression of Jane Wilkinson on the stage. Yeah. Like, the night before. Yeah, yeah. And yet... When she goes to the dinner party to carry out this hoax, she doesn't stay in character. She starts chatting about Greek art and literature and stuff like that at the dinner table. And in the end, that's the only reason that anyone ever worked it out. Because obviously, like Jane Wilkinson, when they realize, when actually it's Donald Ross, this actor, who actually realizes it. When he actually. Multiple he was at parties. multiple parties. And when he actually meets Jane Wilkinson, he realises that these two people could never have been the same person because yeah. Jane Wilkinson is so stupid yeah. and doesn't know anything. Um, so, yeah, we, we were sort of questioning whether... What was she playing at? What was Carlotta Adams playing at? Did yeah, I think that's the, the implausible side of this That's probably story. the most implausible thing. Unless she was just so seduced by the situation where she wanted to show off how clever she was. Yeah, I think you have to assume it's It must something be something like, like that. that. Yeah. And it's plausible, isn't it? You'd get carried away. Yeah, maybe. I think Carlos Radzins would be... I don't think she'd know, do she's, it. She's a pro. She knows what... She, or she ought to know what she's doing. Yeah, and she seemed really up for it. Um, it yeah. surprised me somewhat, but I guess you have to have some kind of way of revealing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I thought that... <laughs> I find it really um, satisfying that this is how Jane Wilkinson gets found out by... She gets found out because of her lack of knowledge of the classics. Yes. <laughs> because this is seriously what she says. They're talking about the judgment of Paris. This is a very funny scene. This is at a luncheon party where she gets found out by Donald Ross because of her stupid behaviour. Yeah. Not Hastings, who's there as well, because Hastings, Hastings would never twig something like this. Hastings is there too, and he tells you about it. And he sort of says that Jane made this terrible, embarrassing gaffe. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is that they're talking about... The, someone mentioned the judgment of Paris. 
And Jane obviously doesn't know who Paris is and doesn't know anything about the judgment of Paris. So she says, Paris? Why, Paris doesn't cut any ice nowadays. It's London and New York that count. Nice accent. <laughs> I've been practising that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so she says this, like, really weird snobby thing about Paris. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how she gets found out. And there's, like, a shocked silence at the table. <laughs> so funny. Because Hastings is like, everyone was stunned into silence. And somebody, <laughs> somebody gasps. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. All these poor Edwardians. But you pointed out as well that what's quite funny about it is that even Hastings thinks she's stupid. Yeah, you're really scraping the barrel when, <laughs> when even Hastings thinks you're stupid, yeah. <laughs> the other thing we thought was a little bit dubious is the whole um, how Poirot is triggered into actually figuring out what's mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, it, it's... It's presented, in, in fact, it's even said at the beginning that it's kind of a cheat because Hastings says that he only solves the case because of a chance remark. But they yeah. literally just overhear a random person saying they should have asked Ellis. Um, and then they go and interview um, Ellis, Jane Wilkinson's um, assistant. Yeah, you should explain that more. Like, they, they literally are, like, walking in the street and a complete stranger is having a conversation about we don't really know what's about a movie that they've yes, gone to film. see. And... He overhears them literally saying, they should, they have, should asked have asked Ellis. Ellis. Yeah. It's very strange. It is. It's and very it's, out of place. It feels quite unnecessary to, for Agatha Christie to feel the need to trigger Poirot into doing this, because normally yeah, it's he's very, very diligent it's very about interviewing everyone involved, including the servants and so on. So yeah, I feel like it's it kind of an odd necessary. one. Yeah. I don't understand why it's in there. Because we kind of originally thought it was a cheat, but then we were like, but... You he would really, speak to Alice anyway. You don't so. really need it. I don't yeah, we really found it a bit confusing, really, it. didn't we? I find it odd that it's in there. Mm-hmm. It's just odd and slightly out of place in yeah. such a... Like, the novel otherwise, like, really fits it's together well. well tight, yeah. yeah, it's good, yeah. So it seems a bit odd that it's in there, but hey-ho. Right, so, as mentioned previously on the show, um, we feel like there's some fairly colourful characters in uh, in this particular book. Have you got a favourite, Bridget? Oh, well, your favourite's probably Jane Wilkinson. I like Jane. <laughs> yeah. Okay, a favourite side character. Um, favourite side character. I mean, they're all largely quite unappealing people. Well, I like Jenny Driver's Bri- all right. She's I quite like, fun. I like Brian Martin. You like Brian Martin, didn't you? Yeah, because he's just a bit all over the place. <laughs> he's weird. Yeah, it's kind of very difficult to discern his motives. Even have read it like twice now and I still can't remember his subplot. There's quite a confusing subplot involving him making up being stalked by a man with a gold tooth. It's very odd. Um, And I can't remember why he does it. For some reason we've both forgotten it. I don't know why. But Poirot decides to punish him at the end by making him think that he's accusing him of (laughs) murder and it turns out it's just... He does that all the time though, Poirot. Yeah. Um, that was quite fun. Yeah, I was a bit like disappointed that like of all the ladies that Hastings meets, he seems to fancy this this daughter of Lord Edgware. Yeah, I mean she's a right drip, isn't she? She's really like drippy, isn't she? Yeah, very. She's the quiet one with the long black hair. Demure. And, yeah, and she's really sad all the time. And yeah, um, isn't she like a teenager as well? Yeah, I think she's, like, 18. She's, like, a teenager. She's just come out sorry. of the convent school. Thing. Yeah, I think they do say yeah. that. Yeah, and she fancies her cousin. Yeah. And, and her much older cousin. Classic yeah. Poirot things. <laughs> <laughs> In these books, 
there's quite a lot of people. And also, when it's Geraldine Marsh and Ronald Marsh who fancy each other... Well, they... I don't think Ronald fancies her. Well, anyway, Geraldine's after this guy. Yeah. And they literally have the same surname. Yeah, I don't think Ronald fancies her at all. I think he right. strings her along. In he fact, just he, wants ta- her pearls. he takes her advantage of her and convinces her to give him <laughs> her mother's pearls because he's other... hard up all the time. The other person we should talk about is Car- Carlotta Adams. She is yeah. quite a positive character. Like she's quite sweet and clever and like not at all she's like disreputable. Like, like, perfect, basically. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's not disreputable at all. Like everyone else is, but she's not. Um, yeah. And apparently, she's based on a real person. Which I thought was really interesting. She is, yeah. She's based on Ruth Draper, who was a monologist and yeah, impressionist. In... Very famous. Apparently very famous. Yeah, I mean, you told me this, and I've never, I'm not going to claim to have, to be a, acquainted with Ruth Draper's works, but I had definitely heard the name. Yeah, um, so... I mean, she's very influential and, like, influenced all kinds of mm-hmm. famous playwrights and movie stars and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite cool, that. Yeah, it's quite cool. I guess there's lots of people in these books that are like really are like meant to be real people, and I just the references go over my head. But maybe if you read them at the time, you mm-hmm. would know. I did listen to you can listen to Ruth Draper's monologues. There are some of them are on YouTube. Right. Okay. They're well. quite. Um, I didn't find them very funny. Like I don't know how funny they're meant to be. It kind of made me think that maybe um, when we read the word impressionist we think that means somebody very funny and comedic. And actually, I'm not sure she's meant to be really hilarious. Yeah. I think it's more like storytelling. It's an art form that kind of changed a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's meant to be hilarious. I think it's meant to be like storytelling, which is why it sounds so odd. Well, when when, um, Carlotta Adams' performance is described at the beginning of the book, it's like a variety performance, a variety of impressions, isn't it? Because there's like tragedy and comedy. Yeah, and it's like, when they talk about it, they say like, oh... Her dying Czechoslovakian woman in hospital had everyone in tears. It brought a lump to the throat. <laughs> it's like, what a weird show. Like I know, yeah. Very <laughs> odd. Yeah. And then the next minute she's pretending to be a dentist. Yeah. So the the ghost at the feast in this novel is uh, the insidious Lord Edgware. He is not a nice man. Yeah, no one... Well, actually, Miss Carol likes him. Uh, but apart from yeah, that... Yeah, but I don't no like one, Miss Carol. <laughs> no. no. None <laughs> of the right-minded people <laughs> seem to like Lord Edward yeah. at all. And, um, yeah, he He's seems... He's described <laughs> repeatedly as peculiar. Everybody yeah. goes on about how peculiar he is and how peculiar his tastes are. In fact, he goes on about... It. He literally says... My tastes are peculiar in that yeah. way that Agatha Christie characters sometimes just tell people what their character is. And yeah. he does that. And, and it just felt to me like it was some kind of euphemism that I didn't understand. So. Well, that's what I inferred. I think he's into BDSM or something. Some form you of think that's perceived sexual deviancy. That, it seems like it's heavily implied because of just how often they say how peculiar he is. Yeah, there's a couple of other things as well. So Hastings um, sees his bookshelf and what he's got on there is like the um, a book by the Marquis de Sade who is sort of the originator of sadist- sadistic things yeah. in sex and uh, the memoirs of Casanova as well. Yeah. And then uh, midway through the book, this Greek god butler that Lord Edgware has disappears <laughs> and it's mentioned that he's connected to sort of underground nightclubs. 
So that's yeah. another sort of like, hmm. I completely <laughs> I forgot that subplot as well. That, yeah, and, yeah. and again, that's another thing that just eluded me about the whole thing. And the final thing I wanted to talk about is the title. Oh, yeah. Because I think it's a brilliant title. It is good, yeah. I love it. It's mm-hmm. got everything. It's got death. It's got the name of the guy. Mm-hmm. Lord there's, Edgware dies. Yeah, there's some good banter by Ronald Marsh in the book about it. Yeah, um, it, this is so. Uh, this is an audacious bit of writing. This for a, for a fiction book, I think, because she literally Agatha Christie literally parodies the title of the book in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is really fun. I thought um, Ronald Marsh is talking to Poirot when he's being questioned, and he says, "I called to see my uncle yesterday morning, and that very same evening, Lord Edgware dies." Good title, that, by the way. Look well on a bookstall. Mm. Well, these books are often extremely meta. So remember, they are <laughs> ostensibly written by Captain Hastings. So he yeah. probably got that idea from Ronald Marsh. Yeah, maybe. And then did it. Yeah, that's a good point. And the, 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 the other thing, the other sort of... They're, they're often self-referencing like this, but another thing that I picked up on that happens quite a lot, and this is less hilarious, but... Um, <laughs> is when Jap often complains about how the police are often made to look very stupid in these books. But these books are supposedly written by Captain Hastings, who doesn't like Inspector Jap, yeah. so it would make him look stupid in yeah, them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like... Agatha Christie certainly likes being very meta. Yeah, it's definitely, like, fun, and it's fun for its own sake. Oh, yeah. Like, I like yeah. that. It just doesn't take itself too seriously. It's quite tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the charms of the whole, sort of, genre, right? Yeah, I find it really appealing, like, mm-hmm. that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, for sure. What we should say, though, is that although we've got all Lord Edgware dies here, mm-hmm. I think that in America... Well, I know that it has an alternate title. I think it's in America they have this title, mm-hmm. and it's called... The alternate title is... 13 at dinner. Yeah. Not as good. It's rubbish. Also referring to quite an inconsequential part of the plot. Um, which is the luncheon... No, it's, no, the, it's, it's the alibi it's dinner party, isn't it? It's quite a big deal. I suppose so. And Donald Ross is the 13th who gets up and then dies, except it turns yeah. out he's not. Or like, and... you could say Jane is the 13th because yeah, she's she not really well. there. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, and Carlotta dies. Oh, and she she's does, a of course. Uh, yeah. well, well done. Well, I hadn't yeah. twigged that. <laughs> but it's it's just not a very good alternative title. No, it's much more boring. The Peter Ustinov film is called 13 at Dinner. Yeah. Apparently it's actually set in the 1980s. Oh, right, yeah. Do, aha, make an appearance. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't like the idea of it being set in the 1980s. No, it's weird, isn't it? That's just awful to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, oh, fun fact, in that film, um, David Suchet plays Jap. Sounds fun. Maybe we should give it a go. <laughs> Although we did watch that other piece of Yusinov film. We didn't like it very much, so... We hated it, didn't yeah. we? Well, maybe this one's better. We watched um, Appointment with Death. Yeah. It's a very strange movie. It was strange. It had a really good cast, but it wasn't very good. Yeah, maybe we should reserve that review for when we actually talk about Appointment with Death. Yeah, we'll talk about Appointment <laughs> with Death. <laughs> but, yeah... So now we've kind of gone through everything, I think we should talk about how we feel about the book overall. Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but I I like it a lot. I like it. I think it's one of the better ones that I've read. Yeah, certainly one of my favourites. Yeah, it's really good. I think the one um, 
thing that I would mark against it is the subplots don't really add much to the story. Mm. They can be a little bit confusing, and I don't think they have particularly satisfying conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I've just completely forgotten them. The Brian Martin <laughs> one is so kind of inconsequential, it's really hard to remember, and the one with the butler is just, the butler disappears. Yeah, so. I totally forgot about the man with the gold tooth by the end of the book anyway, because it just is so, in, like you say, it's so inconsequential. It mm-hmm. doesn't really make any difference. Yeah. But otherwise, I like it. I love the setting. I love to learn about, like, the movie stars and the aristocrats and all those kind of people. How they interact. How they interact in London, how they lead these glamorous lives. I mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, and it's a great collection of characters to sort of tell that story. The about, characters are so fun. Yeah. yeah. Led by... One of the best villains. One of my favourite Poirot villains. Yeah. Jane mm-hmm. Wilkinson is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really, really like... I think she's quite a subtle character. Like She's manipulative and she's quite um, cold and calculating. Yeah. And I quite like that. And it's under the like facade of hyper-femininity and stuff, Yeah, because she is hyper... It's quite an interesting character because she is quite like, hyper-feminine and, and glamorous and interested only in clothes and fashion and being vain. But, like, underneath it all, she's this quite cold, calculating, objective person who carries out this very um, this very complex crime, mm-hmm. which I think is quite interesting. So it's like, there's definitely something in there about the different ways of in- women being intelligent. Yeah, Like, she's oh, not definitely. intelligent in a classic... She's not classically educated, so she doesn't mm-hmm. know anything about the children of Paris... But she does know how to do things and she knows how to get her own way and she is good at carrying out her own plants and stuff. Yeah. I think that's pretty interesting. Good enough. Just not quite good enough for a No one ever is though. Um, Also really like the crime, because it's really it really works. Yeah, I think it's really tight. Um, it it yeah, it, it works very well. Um, it's got a nice level of complexity. Yeah. And it also doesn't rely on anything silly either. No, really. it doesn't. And the switch is is really like the not the switch. They're like the impersonation. It's really, it's pos- It's plausible and yeah. it's fun. It is, yeah. Um, and also, like one of the best things about it is that we get to see the three lads together. It's got the holy trinity: <laughs> <laughs> Hastings, Poirot, and Jap. Yeah, I mean Hastings's storytelling is really light and breezy and oh, makes fun. everything very yeah. fun. And uh, yeah, it's just good to have all the lads together. Yeah, we like that, don't we? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, Highly recommend. Absolutely. Um, put it towards the top of your list if you're, if you're working through the borrows. Yeah. So, thank you for listening to our conversation about Lord Edgware Dies. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I hope you did too. Um, so if you want to follow me, I'm at Crime Fiction Casebook on Instagram. You can find posts about the show, but also about other crime fiction related things like books I've been reading and stuff like that. So we'll be back again soon with another famous mystery story. So we hope you can join us for that. It's goodbye from me for now. Yeah, it's goodbye from me too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Crime Fiction Casebook Podcast. The episode was written, produced and researched by Bridget Coulter and James Wilson. The theme music was also composed, performed and recorded by Bridget Coulter and James Wilson. Again, please give me a follow at Crime Fiction Casebook on Instagram. Thanks again for listening and we hope you join us next time. Goodbye.